If you got a Bible, your phone, or whatever, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. And uh, I, I want to start with a question that uh, I'm paraphrasing from one of Bob Goff's books. And he, here's the question. Spiritually speaking, and, and how you relate to others, are, are you more like an usher or a bouncer? And, and, and what I mean is, is this. Are, are you in the way that you live and, and what you say and what you do, are, are you more focused on trying to usher people into the kingdom of God or are you acting like a bouncer trying to keep out those people that you don't think are good enough to be there? So, I mean, when you, when you think about this analogy, when you, when you think about an usher, I mean, an usher would be someone like at a, at a church service or a concert or the theater, uh, maybe the movies, something like that. And they're there to kind of, you know, direct you, to help you, to get you to your seat, to answer questions, just to kind of get you in, get you situated, help you have a good experience, right? A bouncer, on the other hand, not that, you know, as good Baptists, we'd hopefully know a whole lot about bouncers, but, uh, you know, a bouncer's there to kind of keep people out that aren't supposed to be there for whatever reason, or uh, if people are causing trouble, uh, to get them out. And here's the point. Um, you know, we're called as Christians to do what we can to usher people into the kingdom of God. But a lot of times, Christians or professing Christians, religious people, end up acting like bouncers who sound like they're deciding who can and who can't get in, who's good enough, who's worthy enough, or trying to kick out all the troublemakers or the people who don't fit with them. Let me kind of hit this from a, a different angle and then uh, hopefully... This analogy will kind of help the scripture we're going to look at come alive for us. So, um, really, one of the maybe the largest church in East Tennessee is Faith Promise Church in uh, multi-campus in the Knoxville area. Uh, Dr. Chris Stevens is is their pastor, and I only know him a little bit, but I've heard him speak some. And um, you know, he seems like a solid preacher of God's word to me. But they they've had years where they've baptized almost a thousand people. And, um, but Pastor Chris's testimony is that he was born in, in Chattanooga to teenage uh, parents, and his dad left when he was three. And growing up, he had five different stepdads. Him and his brother were sexually and physically abused. When he was in elementary school, one of his uncles gave him his first joint. By the time he was in high school, he was addicted to drugs. When he was 20, he was a drug dealer, and at 22, he almost died of a drug overdose. Now, they didn't grow up in church, but at times as he was growing up, he would spend the night with friends. He wanted to do that as much as he could just to get him out of the home environment that he was in, and he would go to church with some of those friends. So growing up, he had heard the gospel some in, in, in going to church with uh, some of his friends from time to time. And so at the age of 22, 
almost died in the hospital after this drug overdose, after he'd been there three or four days, and uh, you know his mind had, had kind of cleared. He said, really, his mind had kind of cleared for the first time, uh, really, in years because of all the drug use. I guess he maybe hadn't gone that long before uh, without drugs in a few years, that his mind went back to the gospel that he heard some growing up, and in just his brokenness at the end of his rope, he called on the name of Jesus and asked him to forgive him of his sins and just to come and take the broken pieces of his life and, and put them back together again in some way. And, and God saved him, he forgave him, and, and began to transform his life. And so uh, the next Sunday after he got out, he went to a church. He said it was Eastlake uh, Baptist Church. It says it doesn't even exist anymore in the, in the Chattanooga area. And this was 1982. And um, he, he said at the end of that service, after the pastor preached and, and gave a, a public invitation, that he, he walked down the aisle. And this is how he describes himself. He says, had an afro out to here. I was wearing a silk shirt uh, unbuttoned down to my navel, navel and a big gold chain and platform shoes. He apparently thought it was still the 70s instead of 1982 or thought he was in the Bee Gees or something. And he said, this little traditional Baptist church had no idea what had hit them. And, um, but he said that you know, the pastor took him under his wing, uh, became his father in the ministry, and that there was an older couple who were there that day who took him home for lunch, and he, they ended up becoming basically the family that he had never had. He, he said he ate there almost every day. They discipled him. They taught him. They trained him. They acted like ushers instead of bouncers. But the flip side of that is before he went to church that day at the age of 22, the last time he had been in church was when he was 14 years old and he went with one of his friends. And remember the context, born to teenage parents, dad leaves when he's three, five stepdads abused, they're very poor. And he said school shopping for them was going to Kmart and buying two pairs of jeans and two shirts, two t-shirts. And that was like what they had. That was, you know, it. That was the best they had. That was what they had. But he said when he went to church that day, uh, that a deacon met him at the front door or in the lobby and said to him, uh, when you come back here, you better be wearing your best clothes. Don't come back here uh, dressed like that. What's that sound like? A bouncer. And he said, don't worry, I'll never be back. And never went to church again until he met Jesus when Jesus rescued his life after almost dying at the age of 22. Are we going to act like ushers? Are we going to act like bouncers? Look at this story in, in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is an amazing, it's an action-oriented chapter. Jesus working miracles, healing people, forgiving people. Uh, it's really, it, it's an evangelism chapter. And, and here's one of the stories. It says, after these things, he, talking about Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or he's also known as Matthew, one of the disciples. He wasn't at this point, though. He says he was sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Jesus said to Matthew, to Levi, follow me. So he left all, this was his response, rose up and followed Jesus. 
Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. He decided to throw a party. He, he decided to, to celebrate. It says there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. So basically, he got his pagan buddies together with Jesus and his disciples. But the, the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, you see, their religion was more like a funeral service than a party. I would say to us, if our religion is more like a funeral service than a party, something's missing. Something's wrong. There ought to be some joy in it. I mean, if we believe we were headed to hell and our only hope was Jesus, the Son of God, coming and dying for us, and he did that, and he rose from the dead, and he's alive, that shouldn't resemble a funeral service. I mean, when you uh, read the Gospels, Jesus had this little habit of breaking up funerals and turning them into parties because he raised people from the dead. And you understand he's still doing that today because the Gospel is not bad people can be good. The Gospel is dead people can live because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and we died to sin in him and were raised up to walk in the newness of life in him. So, so you have this salvation, you have this celebration, but then you have uh, these religious people uh, criticizing and complaining and, and asking this question. But if you notice here, um, it says they asked the disciples, but then the next verse says that Jesus answered. And this is what he said to them. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, and that, that seems obvious, but what he's getting at, what he's saying to them, is you, like, these, like Matthew, you need to recognize your spiritual sickness. They were too arrogant. They were too self-righteous to see it. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, let, let me give you a little background on this passage, and then I actually want to read it again because I think it will pop in our minds even more once we have this background. There's basically three sets of characters here. There's Jesus and the disciples, there's Matthew and the tax collectors, and there's the scribes and the, and, and the Pharisees. And so Jesus, the, the Pharisees at times would call him the friend of sinners, they meant it as an insult. He took it as a compliment. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save uh, that which is lost. He said, we're to go after the one lost sheep. You see Jesus interacting with uh, all different kinds of people within the society and him training and teaching his disciples to do the same thing. Now, you've got Matthew and, and the tax collectors. Now, who are they? Well, you remember what it said there, the sinners and the tax collectors? In the Jewish mindset of that day, to say sinner and tax collector was basically synonymous. I mean, if you think about what we would consider the lowest of the low in our society today, which I don't know for sure what that is. It may be different in people's minds. Uh, whatever you think that is, that would have been the tax collector's in the day of Jesus. Basically, uh, the tax collectors, uh, they hated them because they were in cahoots with the Romans. Basically, you know, they were occupied uh, by the Romans. They weren't really free. And the Romans charged these different kinds of taxes. There were property taxes. There were what we would call like a almost like toll roads, poll taxes uh, kind of thing. And, and basically what these tax collectors would do is they would buy a tax district from the Romans, 
charge whatever taxes, collect whatever the taxes the Romans required them to do. And then the way they made money off of it is they charged uh, on top of that, kept that for themselves, were basically kind of extorting the people. And so the people considered them uh, to be greedy. The Pharisees would consider them to be unclean because of all their contact with the Gentiles. And they were considered to be traitors. They were hated. I mean, for Jesus to associate with them would have actually been scandalous. Uh, One writer has put it this way, according to the rabbis, there was no hope for a man like Matthew. He was excluded from all religious fellowship. Now, if you think you're too bad or too sinful to be forgiven, keep that in mind as we look at this story. Because Jesus went looking for him. Jesus wants to save sinners. He wants to save people, and sinners are the only candidates. That's all he's got to work with. That's the reality. Now, but, but think about uh, the Pharisees, this religious group. Now, just there was four main religious groups in Judaism and Israel at this time. So you've got the zealots who uh, wanted to use armed insurrection to overthrow the Roman occupiers. You've got the Essenes who wanted to retreat out in the desert and just avoid society and avoid problems. They were almost kind of like the, uh, a monastery, that kind of thing. Uh, you have the Sadducees who were like the liberals of the day. Uh, you know, they were the ones who didn't believe all the Bible. They denied the supernatural. And then you have the Pharisees who were the legalists, the fundamentalists who, I mean, uh, a lot of their doctrine was right, but their problem was they added to Scripture and at the same time, they missed the main point of Scripture because they made it about external things and rituals and ceremonial cleansings and all these kind of things. And Jesus told them they missed the main point, in which they ultimately, at this point anyway, a lot of them eventually got saved, missed him. But, you know, Jesus taught us the main point of the law is to love God and love others. They were just all about the external stuff. Now, it's interesting, history repeats itself in a sense, and I'm not, this isn't exact, but I think there's a sense in which this corresponds to the spiritual landscape of our day. You've got the zealots, you've got the Christian nationalists, the ones who are all about changing the government. You have people who are kind of like Essenes who think uh, church ought to be like a bomb shelter where we run and hide uh, from the world and we just try to hang on until Jesus comes back without being polluted by the world around us and trying to hide our kids and hide everybody and just make sure that we're not around any sinners and that our family's not gonna get corrupted by it. You've got the Sadducees, woke, progressive uh, Christianity that's trying to you know, fit in that's compromising, that's trying to get along with the world, trying to, you know, make everybody happy and, uh, you know, departs from Scripture, tries to explain away Scripture. But you certainly have all kinds of uh, fundamentalist legalists that are adding to the Bible and trying to conform everybody to their image and make everybody, uh, you know, look like uh, them. But these Pharisees criticized Jesus. And basically what they were saying is, you can't really be of God and associate with people like this. Did you just hear the arrogance oozing out of that? 
So with that, that background, let's just read these five verses again quickly, and then I just want to point out three truths from them, if we could. So verse 27, again, says, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector. Now, when you read tax collector, think about what we just talked about. Like, I mean, to, to the Pharisees, would be like, after these things, he went out and saw the scum of the earth. But notice it says, he went... He saw, he was looking at him directly and intently is what it means, and he said to him. You see that? Matthew didn't go find Jesus. Jesus went and found him. Matthew didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose him. He called him. He said to him, follow me. And notice his response. And so, you know, this is supposed to be our response to the call of Jesus in our lives. He left all, rose up, and followed him. He made a clean break with his own life at a cost to himself. Because remember, he had already bought this tax, tax district. He's got to be paying the Romans off. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but this is potentially creating some serious problems for himself by making this decision to turn, to repent, to stop extorting people, and now start following the Lord Jesus. But then, you know, what he did, notice what he did. He, he gave him a great feast, threw a party. This would have cost him some more money, too, when he's just left his livelihood. Great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. So, you know, the, these scum of the earth kind of people are there. Jesus and his disciples are there. And the Pharisees show up. And I doubt if they went in the house because they would have considered themselves too holy for that. But remember, and this is how religion can warp you, they were too holy to go into a Gentile named Pilate's residence while they were get, trying to get him to crucify the Son of God. And it says they, the scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so number one, we see here that Jesus calls sinners to uh, repentance, that he takes the initiative in bringing people to himself. But, but I think the thing that is underlying this, that what Jesus was getting at, what he was trying to help them see in verses 31 and 32, is that we're all sinners. That's not the question. The issue is, will we see that we're sinners and give up on our self-righteousness, our works righteousness, our religion, and stop trying to make ourselves right with God and simply repent and uh, begin to follow Jesus. These people who knew the Old Testament so well missed the Messiah because they were so wrapped up in themselves and their religious rituals and their own goodness. You see, what we see in, in this story is that in the Pharisees' minds, there were two categories of people, spiritually speaking. There were them and the bad people. Like, we're the good people. Everybody else, these people over here, these are the bad people. What we see, though, that the truth is, what the Bible teaches us is, there are two categories of people, but that's the wrong two categories. Spiritually speaking, the two categories of people are Jesus 
and everybody else. There's not good people and bad people. There's Jesus and sinners. There's Jesus and us. And you see, we can be different kinds of sinners. We can sin in different ways. We can sin in different amounts. We can look different outwardly. But in the heart, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sins separate us from God. And the wages of sin is death. God is holy and, and, and we are not. And, and listen, what we see here and what we see elsewhere in the gospel, remember the parable of the prodigal son? There's the younger son who pictures a rebellious sinner. There's the older son who pictured actually the Pharisees, religious sinners, but were all sinners away from the father until the father sent his son to come looking for us. Jesus went after him. The father in that parable ran and met his son. In one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, you go back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, were ashamed, were hiding, God came to them and God called out to them. God came looking for them when they had just completely messed up the entire world. That's the kind of God that we have, one who comes looking after sinners to usher him into his kingdom. So there is a major problem if we act like bouncers trying to keep people that aren't qualified in our mind out of his kingdom. That's what the Pharisees were doing. So, we have all sinned against a holy God. Chuck Colson used to use this line in uh, speaking to religious crowds where he would say that the reality is we're more like Adolf Hitler than we are Jesus Christ. And that's true. You see, this means that there is no person who is not in need of the grace of God because we're all sinners, but it also means there is no person who is beyond the grace and the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Jesus went after the tax collector. We're not too bad for him, but we're not good enough to not need him, and the way that we miss him is by thinking that we're good enough, that we're righteous enough, we're religious enough, we've done enough, where we can make it to heaven on our own, or maybe the more subtle and insidious lie is that we can make it to heaven by helping him out. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be saved, we have to come to the place, the end of ourselves, where we know that we have no righteousness and just cling to Jesus and him crucified, knowing that that is the only source of our righteousness. I mean, think about Chris Stevens and his testimony. He wasn't too bad for Jesus. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. We can't out the grace of God. But do you understand, I mean, I got saved when I was nine years old as a church kid. I was just as lost as him, just as in need of grace as him, just as incapable of saving myself or helping contribute to my salvation as he was. On the flip side of that, uh, I kind of happened across an article on the internet this week, and the, and the headline just kind of caught my attention, and I think it fits with this. This is the headline that caught my attention. It's when the pastor baptizes his wife. And um, 
the lady who wrote his name is the one who got baptized. Her name's Jess Kurz, and she was the pastor's wife. And I'll read some of it and share the story of some of it. But she said, I've been a pastor's wife for seven years before I realized I wasn't a Christian. She said, I wasn't raised in a godly home. We didn't go to church. But when I was 12, we went to church uh, at Easter. Hopefully this encourages us to invite people to church for Easter. And her and her sister liked it. And her mom asked them when to go back. So they went back. She said, that summer I went to a Christian camp. And at some point during the camp, they told her if she prayed a certain prayer, that she'd go to heaven. She wouldn't go to hell when she died. And she said, of course I prayed the prayer. Because, right, you know, you want to go to heaven and not hell. Uh, you hear that when you're a kid, right? And she said, then nothing changed. There was no godly conviction when I sinned. I still delighted in sin. She said, I feared I did the prayer thing wrong, which must mean I needed to do it again. I was baptized at 14 because I was told I should be, but then she talked about how her life just kept following this pattern of sin, and then she prayed the prayer again, you know, try to, uh, you know, get saved or whatever, and then just this pattern. But she thought she was a Christian. So she went to college, married a young man who was called into ministry, and um, in, in 2008, they moved to plant a church in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, becoming a pastor's wife and uh, trying to plant a church exposed her actual spiritual emptiness that she wasn't really saved. And she's, you know, kind of trying to fake it and said, I can't do that. But she didn't want to admit it to her husband. So she said, I returned to one of my favorite sins, which is escapism. And she started lying to herself, believing lies, trying to justify herself. She said she started drinking to numb the pain and then, you know, just kind of went downhill from there. She talked about sins she began to engage in uh, that she just didn't even mention. And finally, in July 2010, she told her husband that she wanted out of the marriage. And, uh, you know, he wanted to salvage it. So, you know, try to find somebody to replace him in the church plant, ask, you know, ask her, convince her to go to marriage counseling, uh, some things like that. Uh, you know, she was trying, but deep down she knew she wasn't a Christian. And she says, I remember asking Joel one day if he would be okay if I weren't a Christian. He told me he would still love me, but he wouldn't be okay with it. And he said, I would preach the gospel to you every day if I have to. As he said, for six months, that's what he did. And um, she said, for six months, I refused to believe and, and refused to find any hope in our marriage or his faith. But then she said her words in January 2011, something changed. I now know what it was. I was converted. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me of my sins, assured me that Christ bore their penalty on the cross and rose again from the dead. I repented of my rebellion and trusted in Jesus Christ. It happened in a moment, but I can't tell you exactly what that moment was. All I know is that Joel took me out to a restaurant and I confessed my sins to him. As I did, I confessed those sins to God. I not only felt grace and love from him, I felt grace and love from God. I felt a weight lifted. I was saved under the faithful preaching of my husband. The hopelessness I'd always felt was gone. I had an, an insatiable desire to be in the word. Even better, it made sense to me. I had a new desire to serve others, share Christ with others, and serve the church. These were just some of the beautiful proofs from the spirit that God had saved me. 
And eventually, um, she, that's where the title of the article comes from. A few years later, she kind of processed through all this. You know, she got baptized to make sure her baptism was on the right side of her salvation, and her husband baptized her. And here's the point. You can be a pastor's wife, or you can be a drug dealer, but only Jesus saves. He will save, but he saves when we come to the end of ourselves, admit our sin, admit our complete incapability to save ourselves, and genuinely repent and trust him, not just pray a prayer you know, try to escape hell and get into heaven. But the Spirit of God doing a work in our lives. And, and, and when that happens, he changes us. The Bible says we're known by our fruits. Do you know that you know? And, and is there outward evidence that God has truly saved you through Jesus Christ? Are you trying to earn it? Are you trying to contribute to it? And listen, this is what I would encourage you to do. In the last point, in the last time we have together, I'm kind of going to turn and we'll talk to Christians. But if you're not a Christian, you're not sure right now, if God's Spirit is dealing with your heart, tune me out and talk to Him. Call on the name of Jesus. If you believe, confess your sins, confess your faith, ask Him to forgive you. If you're not sure, if you've got questions, seriously, Grab somebody near you right now and go find a quiet spot and let them help you get this settled. If you're online, uh, connect with one of our hosts in the comments, the chat section, and let them help you talk you through this. Make sure you have this settled. It's not about being religious. It's not about external stuff. It's a relationship. Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God. Do you know him? If you know him, have you publicly confessed him through baptism on the right side of your salvation? Maybe some of you need to take that step. You see, what we see in verse 28 is what Matthew did. If we hear the gospel and are convicted of our sins and our need for a Savior, we must repent and follow Jesus. Matthew made a decisive break with his old life and began to follow Jesus. And, of course, the reason he did this is because he was trusting Jesus. He was believing that Jesus is the Messiah. If you believe uh, that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and rose from the dead, right now, now repent, make a decisive break from your old life and confess Jesus as the Lord of your life and begin to follow him. So like I said, if you're not sure, settle that today. Settle it right now. But for those of us who are Christians, we see in verses 29 and 30 that followers of Jesus introduce other people to him. Followers of Jesus introduce other people to him. Uh, followers of Jesus act like ushers and not like pharisaical bouncers. He basically threw an evangelistic party to connect Jesus and his sinful friends together. They got criticized for it. Religious people are always going to criticize especially people that love people and are reaching out with the gospel. They criticize Jesus. Listen, if we're going to really follow Jesus today, the world's going to hate us. Legalistic Christians are going to criticize us. 
Progressive Christians are going to criticize us. There's a whole list of people that are going to criticize us. We're in good company with our Savior if that happens. So don't worry about that and just go follow Jesus and do what he's called you to do. I mean, everybody's outraged about something today, so you can't live your life to make a whole lot of people happy. Listen, are we going to be like Jesus? Are we going to be like the Pharisees? Now think about it. As sinners saved by grace, who are we to think that we are morally superior to anybody? Listen, if you think you're morally superior to somebody, you don't understand the gospel. We're all sinners. We sin in different ways. You may say, well, look at these terrible things that other people have done that I haven't done there, but for the grace of God go I. If, as sinners saved by grace, who are we to think we're morally superior to anybody? Who are we to look down on other people or refuse to associate with other people or other groups of people? Listen, the church in the United States got a lot of problems right now. And some of it, it has to do with, with truth and people not wanting to hear the truth. But some of it is self-inflicted wounds because we've acted a lot more, more like bouncers than ushers in a lot of cases. Do we love people? Do we care about people? Do we listen to people? You can go a long way being a witness for Christ just by listening to people's stories. I'm not saying everything they're going to tell you in their story is right, but you can break down a lot of barriers just by asking some questions and listening to people. Uh, one time when uh, you know, I was pastoring in, in, in Frederick, Maryland, uh, we had a youth minister who, there was, a, there was a college in the town that used to be an all-girls college, but I guess with affirmative action, they had to let some males in. And uh, a youth minister got a scholarship there, I guess, as a token male. And um, at, at, at one point, um, they, they had, I don't remember all the details of it. I just remember us going to it. There was like this outdoor Wiccan service. And um, so, so we went to it to, you know, to pray and to, and to be a witness. I remember talking to one young lady, one of these people who said she was a, a, a Wiccan, who as we talked to her and, and as she shared her story, she said she'd grown up in a pastor's home. But she left the church and got into this because of how badly her family had been treated by people in the church. Now, does that make it right she was a Wiccan? No. But it sure gives a lot of perspective to why and to where she's coming from. Do we do that with people? I, I mean, you know, sometimes you listen to... to somebody's testimony, or you know somebody, and, you know, what if you'd known Chris Stevens when he was a drug dealer? A lot of people Chris oh, what an awful person or whatever, but did you know he had five stepdads and had been abused? Who are we, as sinners saved by grace, to act like people can be made right with God through religious ceremonies and external activities? That's Phariseeism. Who are we, as sinners saved by grace to call people names, to condemn people. You know, there were a couple of pastors in Texas who after the inauguration called the vice president Jezebel. 
That's really sharing the love of Christ, isn't it? I mean, that's really going to be a good witness to the world around us. Who are we as sinners saved by grace to expect non-Christians to act, to think, to talk like Christians? I mean, the Bible is very explicit about that. There's a whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, that says we're to deal with sin inside the church, but those outside the church, God judges. It's moralism. It's not the gospel to think that someone who is not a Christian should be acting like a Christian. And we do it all the time. I mean, let me use an example since we're coming out of the election season. I don't talk about politics uh, when I'm preaching. This isn't politics. Th this is about the gospel versus moralism. So uh, let me just give you this example. So for me personally, for us as a church, we are unashamedly, unabashedly pro-life. Believe that abortion is wrong. We believe that uh, life begins at conception as a gift from God, that every person is made in the image of God with a soul starting from the womb. So every person has value, worth, uh, dignity. Uh, you know, this is part of what makes racism wrong. But that means that everybody should have a chance at life. And so one of my personal convictions is I'm not going to knowingly vote for someone who is pro-abortion, who's gonna advocate for those kind of laws and, the, and that kind of thing. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna automatically vote for someone just because they're, they say they're pro-life, but it's gonna rule out a lot of people for me. But this is the point that I wanna make. So here are a lot of Christians, a lot of conservatives, like on social media, different places, you know, making arguments, trying to convince people to, you know, to be pro-life or, you know, how bad people are if they would vote pro-abortion and that kind of thing. But, but I want you to think about something. You take somebody who is not a Christian, so they grew up without a lot of Christian influence, which is common in our society today. They've been taught at home, by society, by the media, that this is a woman's right to choose and you're infringing upon her rights if you try to take this right away from her. Plus, they've been educated, indoctrinated in an evolutionary worldview that would basically just say, you know, we're the random, uh, we're a product of random chance, and so we're just basically blobs of tissue and uh, highly evolved animals, which if you carry that out to its logical conclusion means that life can really have no intrinsic or objective uh, purpose or, or, or meaning to it because we have no soul at that point, which is what the Second Humanist Manifesto uh, says. And uh, so there's no life after death. So and someone's been indoctrinated in that. You really expect to change their mind by ranting on social media? I mean, really? But, what if there's someone you know? You build a relationship with that person. You share God's truth with them. You share the gospel with them. At some point, that person gets saved. 
When they get saved, they now have the mind of Christ. They have a regenerated heart. They have the Holy Spirit living within them. And then you help them get in church and uh, get in a small group, and you work with them. You disciple them. You teach that person. You teach them God's truth, and they begin to see that God's the giver of all life, that uh, you know, life begins at conception is what the Bible teaches. See, because now if they're truly saved and they're being discipled, the Bible is going to be the authority for uh, their life when it wasn't uh, before, and you're teaching and training them and they, and they see, uh, you know, that we're all made in the image of God and those kind of things. If that happens, if their convictions change, their voting's going to change. You see, we confuse the root and the fruit, though. How we vote's a fruit issue. The root issue is the status of our hearts and whether or not we're right with Jesus. And you see, we're not called to be like zealots trying to overthrow the government or establish a theocracy or be Christian nationalists. We're not called to be Essenes to run and hide in the desert and just try to keep our family safe till Jesus comes back. We're certainly not called uh, to be uh, the, the Sadducees who are uh, wimping out on, on, on Scripture and uh, trying to go along to get along and denying the truth of God's Word. But listen, we're not called to be like the Pharisees either, being legalists adding to the word of God, trying to make everybody like us, trying to change everybody outwardly. We are called to be Jesus-loving, gospel-centered followers of Christ who are disciples who make other disciples by going and preaching the gospel to every creature, by going into all the world and baptizing those who get saved, teaching them to obey all who, uh, teaching to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And as people get saved and people get discipled and people change from the inside out, out, then things can begin to change outwardly. That's what God's called the church to be. See, we're all called to be evangelists, like Matthew. My favorite definition of evangelism, it didn't come from, I don't know where it came from, but heard it somewhere along the way, is evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Or maybe you could say it based on this passage that evangelism is a sick person who's been healed by Jesus interviewing a sick, or introducing a sick friend to the doctor. That's what It doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else. It means we all have the same need, and I want to tell you about the one who can meet the need. And you know, one of the things that I've been really encouraged about uh, you know, from our church, there's a lot of things I've been encouraged about. I'm just thankful for the work that God's doing. Thankful for your faithfulness through all the difficulties of this past year. But just, just the number of stories that I've heard recently about people in our church sharing their faith, uh, leading others to Christ. I mean, uh, just a few of them. You know, one of our men has a friend who's from Vietnam at the gym, f far from God. But as they started talking, and now, you know, he, he challenged them to read some of the Gospel of John. He's reading like two or three chapters a week, and they're talking about it. Uh, one of our small group leaders told me about a guy in his group who led one of his friends, I think it was online, to Christ at Christmas and is now discipling him. 
uh, one of our ladies who's originally from China has started a small group uh, for Chinese women who are married to American men that has people around the world, some of them non-Christians in it. I mean, you know, you can be staying in because of COVID. I mean, there's a couple in our small group that have stayed in about as much as anybody I know through all this that are maybe uh, the strongest witnesses for Christ that I know right now. You, you can, you can, there's lots of ways that we can share our faith. One of the guys in men's leadership training led one of his friends to the Lord last semester, and then he, he preached one of his grandparents' funerals, and people got saved at that. You saw uh, last month Barbara Nichols and, and, and the video, the testimony that she shared. Uh, one of the men in our church uh, texted me on Friday, says, at the grocery store waiting on my wife, share my testimony with somebody. Who's your one? Who is it that God's put in your life that he wants you to care about, that he wants you to reach out to, that he wants to use you to usher in to the kingdom of God? He wants us to stop acting like bouncers, acting like we can classify who's good and who's bad and who's worthy and who's not, just to realize we're all in the same boat. Jesus came and died for all of us and everybody needs to hear the gospel. Listen, it's why through this pandemic, we've doubled down on what we're doing in church planning and missions overseas. You know, started working in Uganda and looking to expand that even more. Listen, there is so much hopelessness and emptiness and, and, and despair in the world right now. And if we believe the gospel, we're called to make a difference. We're called to be the carriers of, of life and light and hope to a dark world around us. And listen, I know that COVID's real and it's bad. I mean, I got a text last night. Uh, my best friend from Maryland who lives in uh, Texas now, a little younger than me, is in ICU with, with COVID. So I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm just saying other things are killing people too. Suicide, overdose, despair, Families are falling apart. We're here to make a difference. We're here to make a difference. So listen, if you don't know Jesus, repent and trust him today. You need to get baptized. Take that step. But if you say, I am a follower of Christ, who, who should you be praying for? Who should you be inviting to church? Who should you be sharing your faith with? And along with that, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna close with this. You know, historically at True Life, we had to back off last year. We've kind of, we treated the Easter season kind of like a home mission trip as a, as a big outreach push. And um, we are planning on this year going back to like it was a couple of years ago and going all out as hard as we can with that. Now, we may have to make adjustments as it goes, but, uh, you know, thankfully, at one point in January, the case counts, Hamlin and Jefferson County combined were over 1,500. Yesterday, we were just a little bit over 300. Doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean we don't need to be careful. That's why we've asked people to continue to wear masks and, and, and that kind of thing. And I'm sure there's gonna be things we have to deal with with it. But we just feel like we need to be as bold and aggressive as we can be. That doesn't mean just trying to drag people in here with you. Uh, but you know, you can invite people to participate online. You know, one of the ways we're in a whole lot better position than we were a year ago is all the upgrades that we made there and uh, you know, what we invested in, in that. But I just encourage you over the coming weeks to be praying for our services, 
to be praying for people to be saved, to be inviting people, to be reaching out. Once again, I mean, you'll get a letter about this to my email, be on Facebook tomorrow with more details. But just some of the examples I just gave, it doesn't have to be through the church. If you're a Christian, you don't need anybody's permission to share your faith. Right? I mean, if, if, if you got saved, you kind of know how it happened. And you don't have to have a PhD in evangelism to be able to tell somebody else about Jesus and what he did for you. I mean, you can share your testimony. You can do something. Uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to start a new sermon series that's going to go through the week of Easter. Uh, it's going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes because I think for where we are, where people are right now, it's just a perfect fit. It's called Unsatisfied. And this is the graphic for it. So I, I want to ask you to do something before we go today. If you've got your phone, take it out for a second. And if you, um, you know, are connected with True Life through Facebook or Instagram, there, there is basically like an ad that will have this graphic in it that is on there. So before we go, would you find that and just share that? in your feed on either Facebook and or um, Instagram. And that will increase our reach a lot. I mean, that's an easy thing that can be done. But as you do that, once again, I want to encourage you. If you're not sure about where you stand with the Lord, if you need to hash that out, if you prayed to receive him today, if you need to get baptized, text TLC decision to 94,000. You can do it that way. Talk to me or Pastor Philip, somebody you know here. If you're online, connect with uh, one of our hosts in, in some way, and, and they can help you follow up with that. But for those of us who are saved, let's live like ushers and not bouncers. Let's make a difference by doing whatever we can to usher people into the kingdom of God. Let's not be religious legalists Let's be about the gospel. Let's be about Jesus. Let's pray.